love Jesus this morning. Amen. Hey. Come on, let's declare it as we sing this song. Come on, you sing that verse, old things.
in the name. Do you believe it? There's healing in the name. My church, there is power in the name. Salvation in the name. There is life. Come on, somebody needs to sing that this morning. Come on. the way, the truth, the life, the only way. 
we open our hearts to receive your word. We're thankful that we are children of the King. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Turn to one next to you and say, I am a child of God. Amen. The most important thing you, uh, you gotta remember is, you know, okay, so, 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 so some, some people were, you know, they were doing some stuff, and then, the, and then other people were like, hey, don't, don't do that stuff, and then other people were like, hey, yeah, they should do, you know, that stuff. It's good that they're doing that stuff, and then the other people were like, I don't think they should be doing that stuff, and, and then, uh, and then, uh. And then thing, and then the thing, and then you know thing, uh, the the one, the the do it. So things are like, <clears throat> um, uh, so, uh, it, uh, what what I'm trying to say is that, um, uh, in conclusion, I have I have no idea. I don't know about you, but that pretty well sums up 2020 for me. <laughs> and uh, in case you think we're making fun of someone, that person is a comedian, it's a character he plays. And uh, it's not just some guy <laughs> lost in the park that needs to have therapy, but um, yeah, uh, some people said, and then, and I have no idea. We've been on a journey through Advent, and Prior to Advent, we were on a journey through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Um, under Zerubbabel, we saw the temple rebuilt. With Esther, we saw the people of God rescued. With Ezra, we saw worship restored. And then with Nehemiah, we were on a journey to see the city rebuilt. And following this kind of theme, that until what happens in the temple impacts what happens in the city, the work of God isn't done, and I'm still convinced of that. And so I was looking at the calendar coming up to Advent, and we stopped at chapter 12 because of Advent, and I really felt like God wanted us to go back to chapter 13 for an end-of-the-year kind of processing. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 13 is also one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, and you'll see why in a few moments. This chapter is a chapter that I would dedicate to all true Eastsiders. It's a strangely intense chapter. This chapter doesn't follow immediately on the heels of the dedication of the wall and the gates. Nehemiah has returned back to the king of Persia. We don't know why or how long he stayed. Assuming that he was summoned back. Then he comes back to Jerusalem to see how things have fared during his absence. Only a few years after signing the covenant, 
The people had already forgotten their vows. They have begun again speaking the speech of Ashdod, which means the people have intermarried again. And if you go back, you'll follow that whole cleansing that took place. God's people need to be aware of the enemy's tactics when we come to the end of a year looking back over what God has done and what he's done in our lives. Now, to set the stage, Nehemiah 13, 1 to 3, is a summary statement of everything that will happen. So we're going to take Nehemiah 13, 1 to 3 and put it on the end of the chapter so we can follow it in its chronological um, uh, flow. But listen to some of the verses from Nehemiah 13. Verse 8. Nehemiah says, I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Verse 11. I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Verse 21. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again... I will lay hands on you. Now, just for clarity, he's not talking about praying for them. And when, basically what he's saying in modern technology, if you do this again, I will whoop you. And he must have been a big, strong man because from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And then verse 25, I rebuked them. <laughs> I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in God's name. Now, I've never given an altar call like that. But this is an intense chapter with a lot of emotion. And Nehemiah is clearly angry over what has transpired in the nation. Now, let's just think about that a little bit. Why is he in this state? Why is he this upset? Well, verses 6 and 7 kind of capture it. While all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission to come back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Elisha had done. And it is a dangerous thing for believers to draw back. It's not just a unpleasant thing. It's a dangerous thing when we have gained ground to move backwards. Hebrews says it this way, my righteous, my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we're not of those who shrink back or withdraw and are destroyed, but we're of those who believe and are saved, that our salvation depends on moving forward in our relationship with God and growing in our relationship with God. So let me contextualize this chapter for us just a little bit. This has been a crazy year. How many would agree with that? Difficult year. At the start of this whole COVID pandemic, a young pastor in Des Moines called me and he said, I'm concerned that they're going to shut down the churches, make us quit having church. And I said, look, I've been at this over 40 years. We've been through all kinds of um, sickness and issues that have faced our nation. And we've never been shut down in my history. I don't believe that's going to happen. Just relax. It's not going to happen. 
If I'd claimed to be a prophet, you'd have to drag me outside the city and stone me because I couldn't have missed it any worse. Now, the only part of that that was true is quit worrying about it. Let's do what God's called us to do. So that forced us to live in an environment that I've never lived in before that was characterized by two words, real-time decisions and pivoting, being able to respond immediately to the culture. So think about driving to grandma's house for Christmas, and you have a six-hour drive, and as you're driving, you have a plan. We're going to drive here. We're going to stop here. We're going to do this. We'll get there at this time, and grandma's waiting for you to come. And then you drive into an unexpected snow squall or blizzard, another new word we picked up this year, snow squall, not a derecho. That would have been even worse. But you're in a terrible storm, and you know when you're driving now, your plans don't matter, Right? You have to respond immediately to what the weather is demanding. There are times you have to pull off the side. You might have to pull off the road for a while. It's real-time decisions. That's what the church has been forced into, real-time decisions and pivoting. And for the church, there are some good things and some bad things. And for you, there have been some good things and some bad things in 2020 that I want you to recall. At the start of this, I preached a series of messages called Come Back Stronger, thinking we would come back quicker. We talked about developing your spiritual life, developing your generosity, developing your family relationships, finding those things that are priority, and using this as a time to make things stronger so that when we come through it, we'll come through purged on the other side. And I know some of you, you did. We can talk for a great deal of time of all the negatives that 2020 forced on us. Never in my life before had I worried about buying toilet paper. Never in my life have I been more thankful I had a gun. Not for what you think. But when I walked into Walmart one day and there was absolutely no meat in the meat section, I thought, well, I can at least fend for my family and get some protein. I've never seen that before, not like that. I've never seen those things. And the church being forced to shut down for a period of time. And there's a church right now in California that's facing $1 million in fines because they haven't shut down. And I'm not arguing for or against how people have done it. I'm just saying to you, there have been some real negatives that we have faced, some real pressures we've faced, but that's forced us into positives. The church has been uh, noted for getting stuck in routine. We've been noted of running about 10 years behind the culture. That's been our track record, the church world as a whole. And churches that have not responded and pivoted will not survive, and some of them have not survived. So what has it done on the positive? It's forced us to engage a digital world much more quickly and more firmly than we would have otherwise because we were headed that way anyway. Real-time decisions and pivot, let's go there and make that happen. We've had to find new ways and creative ways to do ministry and in that have learned some fun things along the way of that there are other ways to do things that are still God-honoring. 
Some of you, I just talked to someone this week, said, I'm thankful that during COVID, I was allowed to spend more time with my children working from home than I ever would have, and I, I wouldn't give up that for anything in the world. There have been some good things. Is anyone hearing me? There have been some good things to come out of COVID. It's forced the church to be more flexible, more creative, more responsive. It's forced you to be more creative, more responsive. And it's also taught us, I hope it's taught us, how to respect differences and still get along, but we're still not doing that very good. Your approach from your household is your decision. And how the church runs is the decision of leadership. And if we're on different pages and still love the same Jesus, we should respect each other. James River in Springfield did seven Christmas Eve services packed wall to wall. And there is a great deal of pressure being brought on them for that. And whether that was wise or not, I don't know. But nobody's talking about the thousands of people that chose to come. They came anyway. Can we let people make decisions? Can we make different decisions and love each other as long as we stay united on the, on the essentials? That's something that was forced on us and is being forced on us. Vaccine or no vaccine, it's not the mark of the beast. But I'm telling you, there are things happening in this world that are shaping us for the end of time. And we need to learn how to interpret what's happening and give room for different convictions while still loving each other. Unity does not mean uniformity. So we're learning that. Hello? We should be learning that. My fear is all of the things that you've learned during COVID that have been positives, negatives that you've overcome, when this lifts, that we'll want to go back to the way we were and lose some of the imposed victories we gained. And when that happens, we're in trouble. It's caused some people to awaken out of spiritual slumber. There are people that have come back to the church for the first time in decades and are coming back to a place of finding a healthy relationship with God. But when that pressure lifts, let's not lose the ground we've gained. Are you hearing me this morning? So my appeal to you in this service looking into 2021 is let's not go backwards. Let's continue to press forward. Hashtag, we will find a way. Hashtag, we are Berean. We will find a way to do ministry. And there are things that we need to do we've not been able to do yet. I'm still convinced that spiritual discipline and discipleship happens best in a small group context. And that's been really difficult. But we're going to be forced to find it also not only in a small group context, but engagement of a digital world in the digital church. And I've I, one of the things it's done for me is can I just, can I, can I just be authentic, honest? Do you know what drives pastors? We all have tendencies to, I mean, all of us want to feel successful, right? Does anybody want to feel successful? Anybody want to be a failure? 
If you do, give me your bank account. I'll help you do that journey more quickly. But when pastors get together, they would talk about two things, budgets and attendance. Are you growing? How many people did you have? And I felt all, for years that's wrong. But you know what's happened this last year? All of the church's bragging points went out the window. Which does what? It forces us to quit counting noses and start engaging more fully in ministry. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. For your spiritual life, I wish we had time to go out around the room and say, what good has come in your life out of COVID? You say nothing, then, then you need to find a new walk with Jesus because our scripture declares to us that all things work together for good. There should be something good that's come out of 2020 that you can testify to. And whatever that is, let's not lose that. So when Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, he identifies some warning signs that we've drawn back, that we're not continuing to move forward. And the first warning sign in the verses four to nine is that old power centers rise up when we draw back. Old power centers. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? It means that old ways of doing things that were dysfunctional will rise back to the front. Dysfunctional people who were empowered in some churches will reassert um, themselves. Strongholds that you've gotten victory over, habits that have been broken will try to come back. And if you ever think that you'll get to a place that you will walk in victory without temptation, that won't happen until you get to heaven. Old power centers will try to rise up pressure and stress. So he comes back to Jerusalem in verse um, 4, and it tells us that Elisha, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, and he was closely associated to Tobiah. Closely associated, what does that mean? The, the Hebrew construct there means more than just friends. In fact, it strongly implies that they were related, and the only way those two could have been related was by marriage. Who was Tobiah? Tobiah was a thorn in the side. He was the enemy of Israel. Let me read to you what some of the things that were said about Tobiah before we got to chapter 13. In chapter 2, Sanballat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite, the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it. What did they do? They mocked us and ridiculed us and said, what is this you're doing? Why are you rebelling against the king? In chapter 2, Tobiah is fighting against the people of God. In chapter 4, Tobiah said, what are they building? If a fox climbed on it, he would break down their stones. In chapter 6, Nehemiah says, I realized that God had not sent this particular prophet that prophesied against them, but he prophesied against me because Tobiah had hired him. Chapter 6, verse 17. In those days, the nobles of Judah were sending letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them as he's undermining the unity of the church. Verse 19. Moreover, they kept reporting me his good deeds and telling him what I said. And so watch. 
He's telling them what a good guy he is. They're hearing what a good guy he is. And while he's winning the hearts of the crowd, he's sending letters to Nehemiah to intimidate him. This is an evil man. And where is he? He's living in the temple in a space that was normally used to sustain the priests. Now, we'll see in a little minute why the priests are gone, which is another mark of sliding backwards. But just take at this moment, because of what has happened in Jerusalem, the priests can't afford to stay in the temple. So they've gone home, and they make room for the enemy of God in the house of God. Old power centers rise up. Elishab, the priest probably thought Tobiah got a raw deal. You can tell you're backing up when you begin to sympathize with evildoers. When you begin to think, well, they got treated too harshly. It was too mean. Tobiah is now back on the inside trying to regain power. So when we draw back, old power centers will rise up. People will try to rise up in power that will undermine the direction of the church, of your life. They'll invest in your, um, in your family, in you personally, flattering, trying to dis, uh, distract you from the things that God has called you to do. The structures, flesh, sin. I knew a man that had smoked cigarettes for most of his life from the time he was a little, uh, a young, uh, 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 early teen, probably before his teen years. And he wanted to break that nicotine habit. Went forward in a prayer service and they laid hands on him and prayed for him. And this doesn't happen very often. But his desire for nicotine, for tobacco, for cigarettes was instantly broken and he was free. Some months went by and he began to wonder, why was I so attracted to that anyway? You know what's happening? He's drawing back. You know what happens when you draw back? Old power centers rise up. How many are hearing me now? They rise up. So he thought, I'm just going to try one. I'm not a smoker anymore. And he said he lit one cigarette, and when he did, he was more addicted from that one cigarette than he ever was before and couldn't shake it. It was months before he could break that addiction the second time because power centers always come back stronger and they dig in deeper. And when you cast out one demon, if you don't fill it in with something good, seven more worse than the first will move in the house. So watch. Remember where you've been, the ground that you've gained, and how do I know if I'm backing up? I'm backing up when old things that I had victory over, people that I broke uh, their influence over me, structures that controlled me, I've broken free of those, and I feel them rising up again. Old power centers rise up. Tobiah moves into the house of God. What is it that Nehemiah does. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. 
There's only one way to deal with power centers, and that's to throw them back out of your life with all their goods again. Old power centers. Second, financial giving drops off. Financial giving drops off. Look at verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. What had happened, money was being withheld. People will find it a little bit had dropped off giving. There's a great deal of discussion today about donor fatigue in a pandemic. And while we've not experienced that, and I'm so thankful that people have remained faithful, I can understand in a time of quarantine and isolation, when, when you feel like you can't come and join together with the people of God, it would be an extra challenge to keep giving financially to something you can't participate in. I get that. But that's if your giving is self-centered. If your giving is for what you get. But if your giving is out of obedience to the word of God, it'll stay consistent. Generosity flourishes in the hearts of people. And I, I think during this time of COVID, all of us at one time or another have looked at how can we be a blessing to someone who's in a more difficult place than we are. But I'll tell you when you're in trouble, you're in trouble when your generosity, when the pressure lifts, generosity tends to diminish, not increase. And when generosity begins to wane, that's a sign that you're backing up, that you're losing ground. They were saying, do you know what they were saying here? If you read it, church doesn't need our money more than we need it. Well, I've heard that all my life. Why should we give to the church? I think that they're spending it wrongly, or, or I don't know that... that um, they should live above the poverty line and all kinds of things that you hear. But what happens here is the priests have moved out of the temple and they've had to go back to work in the fields because the church had drawn back and was no longer taking care of those who did the work of ministry. Now, I'm not against bivocational ministry. I've done bivocational ministry in a place where couldn't pay the bills and I've sold things and I've done a number of jobs to do. But here's, here's what I know to be true. And I have good friends that are doing bivocational ministry. They've had to go back to their fields. And I respect men and women who are committed to do that, to continue the work of the ministry. But the fact of the matter is, I can't work in the field and do everything I'm doing here. Ministry suffers. And I'm not pleading my case, and I can say this out of a place of blessing, and the board, the church takes care of us and is kind to us at Pastor Appreciation Day and at Christmas and takes care of us all through the year. There is no complaint in this at all. But when finances dry up and ministry isn't cared for, if the minister isn't cared for, it's ministry that will suffer. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
They've had to go back to the fields because they have to feed their families. They have to take care of their needs. And one of the greatest things that we can do is lift up the hands of those who are in ministry, that we enable missionaries to not have to worry about funding. We enable churches and pastors to not have to worry about funding, to be able to lift up those that are in ministry. Nehemiah calls them back to accountable giving and he appoints trustworthy leaders because they had been giving it to other things. It's more important to fund a pastor than it is to buy a van. How many are hearing what I'm saying? The investment that needs to be made there. It restricts the time available to fulfill ministry. And I'm so, I'm so thankful that when I prep to preach, I don't have to work 8 to 4, 8 to 5, Monday to Friday, and try to cram it in an evening or get in here on Sunday because you know what you're going to get then? You're going to get fast food feedings. Where can I get a happy meal and bring it on Sunday? What will you get from worship? You'll get what you got last week. You'll get the same songs week after week. What will you get from youth or young adults? You'll get things that aren't fresh, that are just being repeated because we ran out of time. And what Nehemiah says to them, why have you neglected the house of God? How had they neglected the house of God under Nehemiah? They neglected the house of God under Nehemiah because they neglected those that did the work of ministry in the house of God. Again, I'm not saying this for any, uh, out of any need or any issue that I want to address. I just want you to look in your own heart. And when you start to feel stingy toward the church, you're spiritually backing up. It's something to watch for. It's something to watch for. How many are still glad you came this morning? It's an indication of spiritual health. Oh, I've been there over the years. We were pastoring early on in, in Olwine. Um, 35 people there. One guy had a job. And a lady came in and was upset at me because we hadn't paid for Sunday school curriculum. And I hadn't been paid. I went for a month without being um, paid full salary. And I was barely making poverty wage. I made more as a youth pastor in a small church than when I came to pastor this home missions church. And I'm trying to figure out how to pay all the bills. And I'm looking at jobs. And I mean, I sold all kinds of things. I sold diet plans. I sold books. I sold all kinds of things. Trying to make it work. Uh, Mike and I, uh, they, Mike and Maureen were part of the church in Olwine. Mike and I sold um, used fluorescent tubes. Now, listen, if you can sell used fluorescent tubes, <laughs> there's a gift to that. The gift is get out of Dodge after you sell it. That's the gift, get out of town. But struggling, and this lady walks in and she said, why have we paid for our Sunday school curriculum? I sat at my desk and I put out a bunch of papers and I said, we can, but then Sunday we don't have lights. So do you want lights on or curriculum? Do you want to teach in the dark? <laughs> and if we do that, then another week goes by that I don't get paid. And you're probably okay with that since you're in here complaining. I was a little more forthright then. I'm just saying, sometimes it's tough 
Ministry is handcuffed. That's why I've said over and over and over again that it is the Holy Spirit that empowers ministry, but it is money that enables ministry. And when you get stingy toward the work of the kingdom, you're backing up. Your stinginess allows power centers to move back into the kingdom. And I'm not saying anyone here, I'm so blessed. I want you to know how blessed. I look in awe at what's happening financially, which tells me our church is moving forward and I'm convinced that we're on the threshold of some great things in 2021 because people are still generous and they're still giving and they're still inviting and we probably have had more people come to church for the first time in the last six months than maybe the previous six years. I don't know. There are people that are hungry out there and I'm thankful for that. But when the pressure lifts, we've got to make sure we don't get stingy. That we stay generous. That we stay generous. Third, the sacred gets pushed out. Verse 15, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, all other kinds of loads. They're bringing this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. I warned them against selling food on, on that day um, and talks about all the things that they were doing on the Sabbath. Look at this, watch. The temple is rebuilt. It's a wonderful thing. Worship has been restored. The walls have been built. The gates are in place. Nehemiah goes home and Sabbath worship goes by the wayside because typically the church doesn't do well in prosperity. Typically. It can and it should. But good times cause us to relax. To take it easy. And so... The spiritual, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I just saw something. I'll tell you about it in a minute. The spiritual loses its priority. When you don't have money in the bank and no food on the table, you'll go to your prayer closet more often. Shouldn't be that way. But how many know what I'm talking about? When, when it's a time of pressure, we've got to get a hold of God. If my people, which are called by my name, and we shout that and we pray it and we have prayer meetings, and then the, then the problem uh, dissipates and the pressure uh, it relieves. And now we go fishing on Sunday. I'm just talking to us. <laughs> Listen, next week I'm starting a new series called Better Things, so just keep that in mind. <laughs> How is this affecting us? Those that are watching online and don't feel safe to be here, I'm so glad that you're joining us online. That's primary. Thank you for being part of our family. And many of you have taken times that you were out there. But I'm, I'm just going to tell you when you're sitting in your front room in your recliner with your feet up in your bathrobe drinking a cup of coffee watching the service you're not taking your spiritual life seriously you're just not you're just not now I'm not suggesting that 
you have to stand up and say amen, though that'll help you. And we have microphones in all those cameras so we can hear you. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. But what has happened, some people, when they've been pushed to their home, have made spirituality become a spectator sport. It happens here, but it happens even more there. And my fear is, and what, what the experts so-called are saying, those that watch trends, is there some people who have drifted off to home church that visit four or five churches on a Sunday morning and don't stay more than 10 minutes in any one of those, maybe five minutes, and bounce all around and kind of pick up a little of what they want. You can't be healthy doing that. Your spiritual life has to be a priority. Community is still a priority. And if this continues, we've got to find a way to better engage the digital community. And those of you who are watching online, don't take this as a rebuke. I'm so glad that you're with us. I'm so thankful that you're with us. But I'm saying it takes more work. And you're not more spiritual because you're here in the building. Because you can sit there, and I might think you're using your Bible app on your phone, and you're playing solitaire or texting, or buying on Amazon. Don't tell me you've never done that. We've had guest speakers. I've been tempted. I'm just coming from a guilty heart. Believe me, I'm, I'm in the same boat. But spiritual life has to be priority. If I can go every Sunday and there's not any problem, it doesn't have the same force that it might have otherwise. They were doing all kinds of other things other than worship. They were, they were worshiping out of their convenience, not out of their passion. Worship became something else they did. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that we live under the Sabbath law, but we do live under the Sabbath principle. And let me give you the Sabbath principle. The Sabbath principle is not based on Old Testament law. It's based on Old Testament creation. And the word rest doesn't mean to take a nap. Take the Old Testament word for Sabbath and understand what that word means. It means, clearly it means, to cease from secular labor to dedicate space to worship. So when people ask me, Pastor, you work hard on Sunday. When's your Sabbath? Sunday. Because we are worshiping together. Now, we're not, and that's what the word rest means, and we're not wired to go seven days a week, and I need a day for my own health to relax and be able to regroup, and I try to get those on occasion, but the idea that, well, I don't get a Sabbath, so I'm going to just stay home and sip hot chocolate and hang out. That's not what Sabbath is. Sabbath is, are, how many are still hearing me? Sabbath is pushing aside your secular employ and setting aside time to make that day holy to worship God. And what happens when pressure lifts is we tend to lose our edge. You can't be a spectator here or at home. Priority diminishes, and when priority diminishes, so will your participation. And when your participation diminishes, so will your spiritual life. So when you no longer have a passion, I, can I just meddle a little bit? I chuckle at people. Nobody's telling me I can't go to church. 
in jail if you want to. I'm going to church. Were you like that before COVID? Are you going to be like that after COVID? Or are you just a troublemaker looking for a fight? Is anybody hearing me now? Some of us driving us isn't passion for Christ. It's we just like to fight. We are Americans, by the way, and we don't trust the government no matter what. It's part of the American way. That was just extra. <laughs> Will you be as passionate then as you are now? Fourth, the end result of that is spirituality is polluted. We're right back in 23, the very thing that had destroyed them, they've engaged in it again. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Do you remember when they got rid of all of those unhealthy unions and those that didn't become Jews were forced to leave and all the way? It was a terrible weeping and crying. It was a huge sacrifice. We're, we're not going to intermarry with the world. We're going to live righteously. And they draw the lines and they clean it it all up and he's gone for a little while and what happens? They're marrying again outside their faith. They don't even speak Hebrew anymore. In just a few years, how easy it is to pick up the language of the world. That's why we go back to the first three verses. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. As we've come to the end of all the reforms again, it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Why? Why was this such a big deal? Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. While they're on their way to the promised land, they're stopped, and someone hires Balaam as a prophet to curse them. God turned it into a blessing. But these people stooped low revert spiritual life to try to stop the work of God. When the people heard this in the law, they realized there's no room for people of this character. This isn't about ethnicity. It's about character. We can't allow that in the house of God. People that will manipulate spiritual things. And so they've gone right back Look at verse 26. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. And what you have to understand that to be is unbelieving women, women who had not um, converted to Judaism, women who were on the outside of faith that wouldn't join the Jewish faith. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying ungodly women? What's happened here? It's amazing what we mix into our Christianity. One of the things that COVID has done is made us sort out what is really a um, Christian faith and what is Christian tradition. Because Christian faith will endure in any context. Christian traditions won't. We've been forced to redefine what is the essence of Christianity and target that. Over time in prosperity, 
you'll watch people begin to add other things to their faith that are not necessarily part of that. But when it becomes added to it, it waters it down. And then we make room for other things that we shouldn't make room for. And we begin to act like and think like and talk like and believe like the world. So that's why Nehemiah responds so strongly. Why he reacts so forcefully. That's why verse 25 says, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean that he, that he sacrificed a cat by the fork of the oak tree on a full moon by a running river or whatever. It, curses in Scripture are the judgment of God. He is saying, I'm asking God to damn your soul for what you've done. Now, can you do that? Oh, yeah, deliver over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh is a New Testament principle. How do you fix that? By repenting. You get out from under that by repenting, and the blessing of God comes. I rebuked them. I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. You're not to give your daughters in marriage. I mean, that's pretty intense, isn't it? It was probably two years ago now that a woman walked into my office and cursed me in God's name and pronounced this over my household. God is saying to you, this was in my office, God is saying to you, I have broken your right arm and I will break your left arm and you will never pick up the sword again. I immediately had God show me what that meant and it was an attack from hell and rebuked that and that individual is never welcome in these doors. Are you hearing what I'm saying? There's no room for that. Nehemiah wasn't playing that game. He was saying, if you stay on the path you're on, you're going to go to hell. And the road out of that is repentance. There are people out there that want to see the church fail, and they wear the clothes of righteousness, and they're named Tobiah. They're named after Ashdod. They're named after, but they look like they have all the trappings and we need to be careful that when the pressure lifts, we don't start adding back to our faith ungodly behaviors that we let go of during the pressure of the crisis. All right, so how do we end this? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> there are three verses that I want you to hear. Here in through the chapter is how Nehemiah prays. Verse 14, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Verse 22, remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Verse 31, remember me with favor, O my God. <laughs> So my question to you is, can you pray that? Can you pray this? God, 
I want you to remember everything I've done and reward me accordingly. That's called pressing forward. (laughs) How many of you have ever said something you hope no one remembers? Few over here, few over here. This is Holy Row right here. (laughs) How many of you ever said something you hope no one remembers? How many of you have done something you wish they'd forget? But it comes up every family gathering. (laughs) Do you remember the time? Shut up. (laughs) We all have those. That's why scripture is so powerful. That if we repent, he forgives and removes all those things from us. So the goal should be, remember is a powerful word in scripture. It usually comes from God as a challenge to not pull back. Remember Lot's wife. Remember from whence you were fallen and do your first works over. Remember those days. But when the people of God pray it, it's God, I'm doing my best to honor you. And don't forget what I've done. That's not an arrogant prayer. It's a way of holding yourself accountable. Can you pray that? God, remember how I walked this week. Remember how I've lived this year. Remember the things that I've done for you. That's not saying, oh, how great I am. It's holding myself accountable to the visitation of God. I I wish I could tell you that Carol and I were having this conversation recently. And we've worked hard every church that we've pastored and we've seen growth at the churches that we've pastored and then watched it fall apart afterwards. And just felt like the church in Oldline that I referenced earlier, God did some great things there, but it's closed today. What about all that? What about all of that? It's not about the trophies I leave behind. It's what I've done that is memorable to God. (laughs) Hello? I want to do something that God says that's memorable. I'm going to remember that in your behalf. That keeps us moving forward. That keeps us from all of the things that indicate pulling back. So my challenge to you as we go into 2021 is are you willing to say, God, I want to do something memorable for you, something you'll remember. Now, I know he doesn't forget anything. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he forgets. It means you're asking him to come by and visit, to show himself to you, to touch you and anoint you with his blessing. And that's how I would like to end for me 2020, going into 2021. I don't want to draw back. I'm going to watch the warning signs. I'm not going to draw back. Oh, but to live in such a way that you could say, God, remember me. Remember me. It's what the thief on the cross said. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What was he asking? He said, I believe in you, Jesus. I've done something memorable as I'm dying by your side and others are mocking you. I believe in you. That's memorable. And we talk about it to this very day. Wouldn't you like to live in such a way that you do something memorable 
that honors him, that future generations say, this is how they lived for God. Remember me, oh my God. Cleanse me, forgive me, and remember me. Let's stand together. And I just want you to let the Holy Spirit turn his spotlight onto your soul. God, remember me. Am I living in a way, am I living in a way that I can, without reservation, say, God, here I am. Remember me. Let's make 2021 a year to remember us. Amen, Pastor Nathan. I love you, Lord. Well, your mercy never fails me. All my days, I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will see the goodness of God.
Jesus, help us to live in such a way that we can pray as Nehemiah prayed. Remember me for this, oh my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Remember me with favor, oh my God. Help us live in a way that we can pray that with abandon in Jesus' name. And everyone that loves him said, amen.